Welcome back to another episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first this week to Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I specialize in pest management, both prevention and treatment. If you're interested in learning more, you can follow me on Instagram at SyncAngel, or you can find me on YouTube, Zenthanol, the same one that I'm commenting on in the chat today. Happy to have you back as always. Next up, Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am excited to discuss, as we teased last week, topic. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what's on tap for us this week, and it should be, as always, an exciting show. Uh, you can find me at CocoForCannabis.com, on Instagram at Dr. MJ Coco, and on my YouTube channel, Dr. MJ Coco. Happy to have you back. Uh, it looks like it's just me and Matthew showing up on the thing right now. I don't know if you want to turn on your background video or whatever it is so that people could see your logo. Yeah, it's with, there now. Oh, finally. Good. good. Without further ado, we got Noah the Groa. How's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Groa on Instagram. You can find me there. And most weeks here, ready to get into it. Happy to have you back. Looks like we're a little bit short this week so far. I think we might have a few more showing up, hopefully, here in the next few minutes. But next up, uh, last who's with us, and certainly not least, the American one. Hello, Jack, the panel, and everyone in chat. I'm the American one, and it's always good to be here. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the discussion tonight. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone's having a great weekend. Going pretty well over here so far. Some pretty solid weather. Can't complain out here. Uh, pretty nice. But I did say last week that I have topics. And the first topic that I wanted to get into this week is going to be talking a little bit about water sources. So uh, maybe we could all go around a little bit, talk about what type of water we're using, whether it's city water, well water, uh, RO water, some sort of filtered water or something else, and maybe discuss some of the implications of that input because it is, believe it or not, a pretty important one for growers out there. So I think that it'd be a nice way to go touch back on a topic like this and we can branch off into further topics as we go. But first, I want to pass it over to uh, Noah the Groa and ask, what kind of water source do you use? And uh, do you have any thoughts on that input? Um, well, as far as the water source that I use, I, uh, I right now I'm using a Berkey water filter so that uh, the, the city water isn't like messing with the microbes and stuff and the living soil I got. But I also have, I'm going to walk out here and look, that I used to use for a while. I had a... Um, this thing that I would plug in in my hose that I got at the local grow store is like a filter. Uh, it's called a grow green garden hose filter by Hydrologic. I was using one of those for a while, but now I just use, especially in the winter, I was just using this Berkey water filter that I actually got a recommendation of Spartan growing from the show. Hopefully he's doing all right. I haven't seen Spartan grown uh, message us. Maybe I missed it if he's not gonna be able to make it this week but uh, he hasn't shown up just yet, but we always are happy to have him. But I guess I could pass it next to Dr. MJ and ask you the same question. What kind of water source are you using and do you have any thoughts on that in particular input? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on water. Um, you know, for my style of growing, the most important thing for the, the water is the, the starting electrical conductivity, uh, the EC, because if there's sort of a lot of stuff in there, then it's gonna limit how much other stuff you can add to the water. 
Um, and if there's not, then, you know, we've had hundreds and thousands, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of growers, you know, using tap water in the style that I, I do um, with a lot of success, as long as they're not running into to sort of high EC. And that's certainly what I did before I moved. I had water that was usually around 200 or so, um, or 0.2. And I would just use tap water um, and use it for all my fertigation. Um, sometimes with seedlings, I would get bottled water because I'd want to be able to give them sort of more controlled nutrients at a really low electrical conductivity. But by the time they sort of grew out of that, um, I'd be able to use tap water, but man, at, at my new house, it tap water comes out like 800. Um, and I can filter it. I've tried a few different sort of filters, um, you know, carbon filters or carbon based filters. Um, and they just, they don't knock enough of the, the EC out of it. So, um, I mixed with, bottled water on the last couple of runs and i'm i've been thinking about this it's it, i'm gonna probably get a a dedicated ro system with my new little grow room um and uh water storage tank for that you, you know there's there's things what, that you don't necessarily think about when, when you what are like those that. 800 ppms doc is that a well or the city what, what are the what are the 800 ppms well it would be it, about uh, 400 drugs? ppm It'd be about 400 ppm. Most of it's going to be calcium. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 I'm, I'm not surprised, really. The water here in, in Southern California, particularly in San Diego, I imagine a, a lot of this water is sourced from the Colorado originally. Um, it's part of the, the big water transfer with Imperial County that San Diego did. That that's now where a lot of our water comes from. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there's certainly water sources that are that high. It's not generally damaging. I mean, calcium puts a lot of electrical conductivity into the water. It's, um, you know, a double charged cation that sort of spikes the EC pretty quickly. So that's usually the culprit when you're running into sort of really high EC. Clay pipes, SDL, which I'm assuming St. Louis, as they comment, St. Louis city water is 670 EC with 9.3 pH might kill you. That's what they wrote. Not to say that that's 100% accurate, but uh, definitely kind of on the high end. I want to jump on a comment that the Keystone Cops just raised. I'm not legally prevented from harvesting rainwater. I'm, I'm somewhat climactically limited by yeah, that's for sure. Harvesting rainwater, <laughs> um, like that would be but a fun idea much. if it rained. But yeah, I've I thought about it actually, and we could probably harvest quite a bit of rainwater. Um, and I'm, I'm probably want to do that, but you know, it's not. It's not a reliable, I mean, it just doesn't rain enough. Yeah, it's definitely not consistent enough throughout the seasons. I know we get a very dry period, a short little bit of rain for a couple months, but I'd say probably nine or 10 months of the year, it's pretty dry and warm here. But as I mentioned earlier, our man Spartan Grown was uh, not here at the intro of the show, but he managed to make it. So as always, welcome to Spartan Grown. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Sorry, I'm a little bit late. I was uh, driving home from... Uh, my buddy's sequences birthday party up at his uh, uh painted ladies in his house so uh there's a get together from the bros and bro show and uh we had it 
you know, eat out and I don't know. It was awesome smoke, awesome food, awesome people. So just one of those recharge your battery days. It was fucking amazing. It sounds like it was a great time. I do want to request because I've had countless listeners out there um, request that Spartan Grown either sits closer to the mic or turns this gain up. I think that your gain's all the way as high as it can go, but I don't know if you can move the mic or if maybe we should send a mic stand over to Spartan Grown so that, uh, because I guess people are saying, I can hear you just fine. Like I'm wearing headphones, we're recording the podcast, it comes through fine on Zoom. So I can hear you and I can hear Doc and I can hear Matthew and everybody kind of at similar levels. But when yeah. you listen back on the podcast at max volume, everybody comes through like regular sound and then you're coming through like maybe 20% of the well, rest. All right. Well, I've got on my mic turned all the way up as high as it goes. Now I'm going to go in the audio settings and make sure before I say, yeah, my audio, my mic is turned all the way as high as it goes. Okay. Well, now yeah. at least I can yeah, tell those people. Background noise is on auto. Maybe turn that off or something. That might be it. The auto, I think, can sometimes regulate it. I, I just personally sit really close. I saw Joe Rogan once say, like, a baseball away from your face to the mic or something like that. But I don't expect everybody to sit that close to the mic. I actually just hold on to mine. Um, but at least for the people out there that have DMs me, uh, now you know, I asked. And uh, we're going to do our best. And maybe I can try something in post. But um, we'll see how this week goes. But with that said, this week's episode, we're talking, at least uh, at the start, about water sources. And I went around and I talked to... Dr. MJ and Tao so far. I don't think that I've went to know the girl yet, but I guess since Spartan just got here and uh, maybe the rest of the panel can confirm who's went and who hasn't, but I'll pass it to you, Spartan, and ask you, what kind of water source are you using and uh, what do you think about that input just in general? Oh, say the water source that I'm using is just for my municipal supply. Uh, so it's uh, treated. I get a report every, I think it's quarter. It's not every month for sure. I think it's every quarter. Um, to let me know what's in it, what the testing levels are. And I just filter it through a Berkey filter system, which is a gravity feed uh, filter system. And I've, I've been happy with it. I'm growing organically. I'm sure that matters. Um, if I was growing synthetically and cocoa and I was trying to start, I would want to have start with a lower PPM water, you know, all the way to zero. I don't believe, I'll have to test it again, but I'm pretty sure that the Berkey doesn't get, I know the Berkey doesn't get it down to zero PPMs. I know no organics. The, I think it's completely fine. It's been really, I've been successful with it. I've been happy with it. I, you actually reminded me by saying Berkey that I, I actually already asked Noah the Grow. I think he uses the same Berkey filter. If I'm remembering correctly, he was the one who started it off. And uh, also being in organics has been having some success with that. It's definitely an interesting one. I think this might be a, a shorter topic, but I want to pass it next to Matthew Gates and then um, just ask if you had a, a preferred water source from maybe the IPM perspective. What do you commonly use or recommend? And then just general thoughts on water as an input. Yeah, um, I actually put in the comments. Uh, I wasn't able to put the entire message in, but for San Diego, just to add, yeah, 50% comes from the Colorado River, according to miracosa.edu. Um, 30% comes from basically Northern California, the California State Water Project. And 20% comes from local water supplies and conserved water and that kind of a thing. So just, and, and I bring it up because I get, you know, the water that I use is also municipal San Diego water usually. Um, as far as IPM is concerned, you know, um, like we mentioned this a bunch of times, but it's one of those things, especially Dr. Coco mentions this, but yeah, keeping your temperatures down is super important. We talked about that um, substantially last week. And I think it should always be brought up that if you can keep those temperatures down, that definitely helps you out with the uh, pathogens and things like this. 
Um, most of the sorts of things that you would be worried about, you know, a lot of these like pathogens in the soil, you know, they're very commonly in the environment. So what you're really trying to do is just not have the environment be particularly conducive. That plus, you know, various effects of the, the plant itself um, can work, and also microbiota if you have it, um, that's relevant in this context at least. You know, all those things kind of come together and you don't typically get the, these problems. But if it gets really, really hot or hypoxic and low oxygen, you know, or, uh, you know, your roots get damaged or something happens and out there's like, like a bunch of algae buildup or biofilm in general, um, or like your dead roots kind of sort of stay. I'm thinking of hydroponic system while I'm saying this, but like, it doesn't have to be the case. Like basically if your roots get damaged or suffocate or something's wrong there, then it kind of doesn't really matter what kind of water you have. Um, the, the, the problem is that you've got this, these wounds and, 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 and tissue degeneration, and that becomes a hotbed for pests. So uh, really just as long as your source of water isn't containing, um, you know, uh, like too high or too low pH and a bunch of the, the basics, you should be fine, really. I was experience. actually just about to go and touch on pH next because as a follow-up, I kind of want to go around and ask the panel if they have a preferred pH or pH range. And I know in the past we've talked a bit about it, but it's always good to refresh the uh, new audience and even the longtime listeners with some of the information about, I've heard in the past that if you alter the pH, that it can be used to combat certain molds, mildews, and fungus, and also might be um, a method for preventing certain pests like insects and that. So Matthew, I'm curious if you have thoughts on using pH strategically in the IPM sense. Uh, mostly, mostly for what most people do is using it so that uh, your plants can acquire the nutrients that they that they need to. That's the that's the main one in in my mind. Um, if you're if you happen to be using, if you're lucky enough to be able to use uh, natural sources of water like a riverbed or something like that, you know, just be careful and cautious um, where that source is coming from because, like, for the same reason why people who have like pet like pet insects like mantises and things like that or a spider or something or ants like there's a reason why you don't like go out and like forage for like bugs to like feed your insectivorous pets because there could be a fungus in there or some other thing that's bad um and the same is true here you know you, you know be careful don't don't presume that because it comes from some nice place that everything is fine you know you don't go out and drink water you'll get giardia or something eventually, if you're not careful, um, you know, so that's kind of my main point is like, you know, get it from a good source, treat it if you'd like in some way that you think is, um, is helpful, but like be aware of where that water is sourced from and do a little bit of research just to know, because some places are maybe going to be dealing with some problems and keep aware too. Um, because I think a lot of people listening in are probably getting stuff from some sort of municipal source. And just being cognizant of what that could be can, can help you in case of some sort of emergency or something like that. Good points. And um, one thing that sort of in my memory just stands out as seemingly opposite, and I just don't have the understanding behind it. And it came from an aquaponic person. I think it might have been Breeder Steve or someone else. But they said that they were having their most success when they were using almost like tepid water that was like green and like funky from like, but when they were using like when it would clear up, it wasn't the plants were responding as 
well, but to me, that seems sort of like what you were just warning about that. Like if you're going to go out in nature and just kind of get it from a natural swampy Lake, then maybe there's good life in there, but also probably it seems like a high potential for uh, infection or, or negative bacteria to come in, but they were kind of preaching the opposite. And I don't know if it was just kind of being like a naturalist from like that hippie perspective, I guess, or if that was just their anecdotal experience, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that before the rest of the panel weighs in on pH. Um, I think that benefit of the, just like, if you could like take a anaerobic water source, say, say it is tepid, but then aerate it to make it, non what was that aerobic i guess aerobic instead of not anaerobic yep to make it aerobic then would it be usable and those we'll say problem uh, microbes would they be like killed off because they they don't thrive in the uh oxygen rich environment and then they could just become food for the plants only the an- no. only the ones that can only survive in the anaerobic space but like what is commonly sort of, and even for me, it's a pitfall for myself to like presume that the anaerobics are the, are the be all end all of pathogens because, you know, it's not a place you want your, your water to be for other reasons. But yeah, the thing is that a lot of these pathogens, they can, they can have like a biphasic or triphasic life. So they can like be in anaerobic space and, and do well, or be in, in the aerobic space, or they just take um, advantage of the roots post hypoxia and they don't really deal very well with it but once the roots are hurt um you know then they come in and they can extract uh, sort of exploit the wounds and things like that but for me like because if you aerate the water that doesn't necessarily kill them because they can kind of subsist in both so like brandon rust microbe consortium you can't really sorry go ahead jack no i'm sorry I, i cut you off well you can't really oxygenate warm water um right that's a good point yeah if unless you're also cooling the water just like pumping air through warm water is not going to be effective at oxygenating it there's a a limit and you're probably already at that limit um pretty quickly and that's what why it's anaerobic is because it's sort of too warm and it's lost its oxygen holding capacity um so keep that in mind you'd also have to sort of chill it then i guess to follow your your example yeah, I think what I'm saying does assume, like uh, Dr. Coco is saying, that you're you're actually able to do what I'm talking about in the first place. Um, and in uh, right, so like the laws of physics, even you if you know, did, it's hot not water a, won't be a guarantee. Yeah, hot water won't safe. be able to do it. Yeah, but if you do it, if you are able to cool it down or or have you know have be able to have oxygen, those pathogens can still usually a lot of them can still subsist. Um, and uh and so you're not really killing them necessarily some you will but not all i want to give uh brandon rust a second to go ahead and introduce himself and say welcome cheers brandon hey what's up everybody i was a little bit late because i was eating dinner and stuff but uh i'm been super busy so i'm glad to be back here join the panel and talk shop with everybody i uh came in on some type of microbial consortium i recognize some talk about some foculative uh species so basically to catch you up to date in our last 20 minutes we did our intros and then uh, i introduced the topic of water water as a source like what water source do you use and then i kind of uh was talking a little bit about 
how somebody might use like a tepid water if they're like an aquaponic grower or outdoor they might use like a swampy lake and have good results with that even though matthew was kind of recommending not to use necessarily like unknown untested foreign water sources and i tend to agree with that so um his comment was that there are negative microbes that operate both in the anaerobic and aerobic environments and i was kind of thinking on the other end it makes sense because there are good microbe consortiums like yours or em1 or em5 that can operate both in anaerobic and aerobic conditions so um just that's kind of catching you up and then i want to just ask you what i asked everybody else is what water source do you use and then kind of do you have any general thoughts on the input yeah so water is actually a really good topic and so what i always do and myself and anybody that i'm working and consulting with is i make sure what we do is we test their water source so if they're on city water or if they're on well water what we do is we have the water sent into a lab and we look at what is actually in that water make sure that it's not high in sodium not high in bicarbonate not high in in chloride and then also we're looking at things like the micronutrients make making sure boron's not gonna you know cause toxicity over a period of time and so once you know what you're dealing with as far as the water you can address any type of issues um and a good example is one of the farms that uh i had co-founded and i was running with uh, which was black label organics they had high boron in the water and even though we use ro it wouldn't um it wouldn't you know solve this issue and so knowing exactly what's in your water and then being able to address like hey we need a specific filter for boron or and, you know and it's more cost effective too because if you're just running ro um, a lot of times it's pretty wasteful but if you're only needing to get out a small amount of sodium you can get something like a sodium filter which is less wasteful it's less expensive and so uh, when it comes to water knowing what is in your water is really important because you can compound especially in organic systems you can compound issues if you have let's say there's a slight issue with uh, let's go back to boron and boron is high it might not be an issue until a year or two years down the line when you've brought in boron into that system over the two years and then all of a sudden you're you're scratching your head going hey what's going on how boronic Uh, yeah what's what's going on if somebody runs into an issue and they're like we've been running the same program for two years with no issues and all of a sudden we can't figure out what's going on if they're not doing testing analytics and they might miss that but someone like myself who's both looking at soil saturated paste and water testing could know so if i saw it on, I'm going to give you a perfect example. Out in Hawaii, I saw a test uh, just recently, uh, this week, and it was high in boron. And that's why I use this example. And so I say, hey, I know you guys are using RO, but I want you guys to test your water still so we can figure out if that is the source. So looking at, looking at uh, data will always give you the best results. And then being able to figure out where the source of that issue lies and so a lot of times it can be your water so it's important water super super important i mean it's easy to overlook it's super easy to overlook expect and that whole thing too especially if you're being if you have great success and you're continuing success and no issues and then all of a sudden you start seeing issues and it it gets worse and worse you're like what the hell is going on we haven't changed anything 
if you're not looking at those types of things, it's really hard to diagnose. It can Brandon be. reminds me also another reason you don't want to test from an unsourced place, even if it's like nice and serene and natural, is um, you know, eutrophication from agricultural sources or other sources, residential or otherwise, you know, chemicals getting into the water, even natural water, right? Like th those things do happen. And so, like, yeah. you know, you can't you can't just assume it's gonna be some untouched you know, Eden's paradise. Because it's Westport is saying Detroit's needing to be tested for it, lead. And to yeah, Brandon, you know what's crazy is you, you can go to your, like your local municipality and look up their local water tests. And there are like national standards for like what's allowable as far as heavy metals and different types of contaminants. And if you look at most city water, you'll find stuff in there that is well beyond the recommended limits for the EPA. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Some of the infrastructure throughout the country is uh, not the best. But uh, one thing I wanted to say about your comment on not necessarily using an RO on top of the additional wastewater. Um, if you have, if you know, like in that case, that it's boron and you get a boron filter, uh, in my experience, specific filters, whether it's sodium or boron, they have a lot faster flow than RO as well. So you're going to be able to fill up your jugs quicker. You're not going to have as much of that water literally being dumped into a waste runoff area. And the filters tend to be a little bit less expensive. Because if people have really high EC, I've seen them, instead of just going straight to an RO, run it through like an RV filter or a Ricky filter or whatever. Uh, um, somebody said small boy earlier, hydrologic small boy works well for them in mass. I think that was sour diesel tangy. And um, if you did something like that in line before your RO system, or you take out at least a big chunk of it, then the RO system is going to last longer, which is your most expensive filter to replace. Uh, most people don't a lot of people won't get an RO because it is expensive just to set up if you get a decent one. But um, I do think quality is cheaper in the long run sometimes. And if uh, you have problems with water, then it can be unnecessary evil. I hate to say it, but yeah, um, no, that's the way that I feel about it too, because I have a love hate relationship with RO because you need clean water for agriculture, but at the same time, you're not trying to be wasteful. With RO, don't you have danger of stripping things off of like uh you know because it's a solvent right at that point and no no no, no, no. it's not it's not it's not and so there's this misconception that like okay ro water is going to somehow like strip like you're not going to get your minerals but here's here's the thing well so that's not what at, i said well i mean but i know i i know what you mean though because people say this all the time do i need to remineralize remineralize my ro water because if i do it's going to pull everything out off of the off of the colloids or the organic matter surfaces that i get that a lot i've heard but when it comes to water right you want clean water but that's it's really not the issue so when we're looking at water and we're, we're looking at ph and, and that's potential hydrogen and if you have hydrogen hydrogen is acts as like in a uh, as a acid right because it has all of those available hydrogen ions that can change you know the chemical composition of other molecules you know and so that's kind of like you know what what you want to be looking at more so than you know like i, I just don't i just don't understand like the the, the thing with ro because i've been using ro for for a long time on organics and people always ask me if they need to remineralize their water. 
yeah, I mean, I wasn't talking about remineralization as much as the fact that, like, because of the composition of RO, there are some things that are that can be, you know, sort of taken out that way, but not necessarily minerals. But like, I think that well, is the, part of those it. are filtered out though. If you do yeah. run it through RO, but those are filtered like out. But I mean, yeah, as it's running through the system you know, assist like, like your irrigation channels or something like yeah. that. I think this really depends on whether or not you're fertigating to runoff. Um, you right. know, it, that it makes will, a difference too. Huge yeah, difference. it will dissolve things. And if anybody pours a bunch of RO water through their plants, it's going to take out everything from that pot. Um, but if you're just using it to water and if you're dissolving other things into it before watering, um, yeah, it entirely depends on sort of, so how much water or what happens to the water at the other side it's got to go somewhere to take that stuff away humans yeah. are worried about drinking True. ro because it'll strip a lot of stuff out of us and then we like urinate it away if you're doing drain to waste fertigation and and feeding with with ro you'll strip whatever yeah. nutrients were in the the pot away um this but is, if you're not is, if it doesn't go away it doesn't go away the the way that i think about it is like this so when you have water, you have free high uh, hydrogen ions, which is H plus, or if it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, if it's a uh, neutral, it'll have OH minus. And so th those are ions that can like attach to other uh, cations or uh, uh, anions and other elements. And so it kind of like, when you're talking about like diffusion of elements, so like hydrogen will diffuse from water to like a, a clay colloid or like an organic matter surface. And in exchange, it'll pull off like a calcium or a magnesium or a potassium ion, and that'll fall into solution. So the way that I think about it is the amount of, like when we're looking at water, especially clean water, which doesn't have really anything in it, but it does have the bond still associated with either the OH minus or the H plus. Um, when you put it into that system, different things will flow into the solution because what's happening is the ions are actually exchanging. They're, they're diffusing uh from the water to the surface in exchange for the mineral elements that are in the soil does that make sense sort of but the other side of this is uh, real ro water will always have a ph of seven um it will always be neutral and that's sort of how you can tell whether it's really ro water or not sometimes um so any attempt to sort of manipulate the the ph and any brewer that's ever tried to put a drop of R of pH down or up into RO water can attest to this. I mean, it's going to swing it like dramatically because there's nothing in there that's sort of buffering the, the um, pH. And that water is prepared to sort of absorb, to dissolve. Um, and the pH will change of the water as it's absorbing, as it's, you know, absorbing, yeah, dissolving. The ions are being used up in that water. That's how, that's what do you mean by that? that I, yeah, what, that do you, what do you mean by that? Okay, so look, there's, uh, water is made of H2O, right? But 
there is both oxygen and hydrogen free ions in in this in solution right that's what actually determines ph potential hydrogen the amount of free available hydrogen in in solution in the water right and that is what is reacting like on an atomic level right it's what's diffusing things from soil surfaces and like it's the oh minus or the the hydrogen if it's a a positive charge it'll it'll exchange with positively charged particles if it's a oh minus it'll exchange with anions that's how diffusion works with water in chemistry no am i wrong well I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure that I'm following all of what you're trying to explain, um, but I think I understand some aspects of this a little bit differently. Um, I'm not really <laughs> prepared to get into the the or the chemistry of pH, um, but Physics. one of the problems I guess I'm having with, with the argument is you're talking about sort of RO water being independent of its pH. Um, but like I said, one of sort of the definitions is RO water has a specific pH. It has a pH of seven. Like you can't have RO water and have it be like pH of nine. It's no longer RO. Something's been put into it to get the RO to go to nine. Yeah. It's not like a magical spell. Like there's stuff that mechanistically happens to it. it, it or is it or something. About, but you're, but when we're talking about the scale of pH, we're talking about the scale of potential hydrogen. And they're saying that it's it's neutral at at seven, which means there's an even amount of hydrogen ions, and then there's an even amount of OH minus anions. And then when you go down that scale, that the hydrogen ions increase, but if you go up that scale, the OH minus ions increase. And how is that normally achieved? Well, I guess the, the thing that really matters is for the grower, that's, what, what that's pH what are we pH using? Is. What range that's are what, you using? We're, we're off of the weeds. So, yeah, we're getting, we're getting too deep into the, the chemistry and the, and the definitions of what pH means. But for the actual grower, like Brandon, what pH do you prefer your water? Oh, uh, it doesn't matter so much the pH as long as it's clean water. And what I, what I mean by clean water is that you can have mineral amendments in there um, because I can look at, I can use the same water that I use to fertigate to do my testing analytics with, and then just make my adjustments based off of what the data says. Um, but if it's something like super high in a certain mineral element, then I'll need a filter. Um, but pH doesn't so much matter as long as, because it's going to be within range if you're not high in things like sodium, or if you're not super high in like calcium or bicarbonate or uh, potassium. And so it's really just about the, how clean the water actually is, it, it, as opposed to pH, because the soil itself, the soil pH and the buffering capacity of that soil is kind of more important than the, the water input that goes in. So your opinion, I guess it's, it's seemingly kind of changed on this because for, or maybe it's Spartan that I'm confusing with, but um, for a while, I thought you had kind of had the idea that you want to get it in at a certain pH so the soil microbes don't have to do the work to change the pH. 
they can just yeah. take it at a proper pH and then, you know, do their thing versus like, like if well, you go in at a well, nine pH and they want it six, five or seven, then they're well, going to have okay. to so adjust it from that nine down to your, 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 your microorganisms in the pH of your soil are going to, are, are going to be it's always going to change, right? Like, so if you go and draw, if you have a higher pH, right, your actinocyamyces count will be higher because they thrive in higher pH soils. But as soon as that drops, those populations will decrease. It doesn't mean they're going to disappear. It just means they're going to decrease. And then when it goes back to that level, and so this is what I like to see, right? So you, we can see the pH scales in like what is more available at which ranges. And if you have a soil that is, let's say you're running your soil at 6.2, but you add a bunch of microbial, uh, um, the microbial consortium, let's say micro plus, and that drops your water pH, which was originally at 6.5 to like, let's say uh, five or four and a half. And you water with that. For a temporary period of time, the mineral elements that are available, things like iron and manganese, uh, phosphorus, those are going to be more available until that water starts to dissipate and then that pH buffers out with the soil pH, right? So, and then same thing, if you go and hit a solution with something like, uh, with a high potassium, and you go and water with that for a slight period of time, the availability of things like calcium and uh, some of the other elements that are higher at a higher pH range are going to be more available, right? So there's, a, there's kind of a, like a, a play when it comes to soil because certain things are available at different ranges, you know, and we're trying to optimize that, keeping it in a specific pH range. But part of that, that, that uh, nutrient cycling is the organic acids that are acidifying the soil, dropping the pH to release, you know, these inorganic elements into a plant available form. Good stuff. Well, I want to give uh, some of the rest of the panels a little bit of time to share their thoughts on the whole pH thing. So I'm going to pass through Noah the Groa and ask what pH or pH range, do you prefer your water? Oh, I, I just try and get it in like, you know, as close to six to seven in that range. I'm not real, uh, probably, I'll be honest, I'm not as good about that. Uh, some of the soil methods that I've messed around with have just kind of helped buffer it. And I'm sure I'm probably lacking some areas, probably just because I'm lazy, but I got a little pH tester. Sometimes it'll be six, six, sometimes it'll be six, two, sometimes it'll be seven and just I try and get in the, you know, six, two, six, five, six, six range, but you know, it's kind of give or take and just depends on how lazy I am that day or week or whatever. So. Hey man, at least you're being honest and whatever works. I haven't pH tested in probably at least a year. Um, so I'll be honest, it's not something I'm doing regularly. So remixing my soil with the amendments that I think do a good job for the most part, buffering and having looked at my water tests from my local municipalities over the past few few years, every single time I get the report, I'm not super concerned about my water source. And until it's uh, like Brandon says, until it pops up with something that's going to give you an issue, uh, I'm not going to go through the effort of testing it, uh, adding the additional expenses when if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. But if I was at a larger level on a commercial uh, scale, I would understand why it might make sense to go through the effort of having additional testing done. But um, the American one, I'm curious, 
what your range or number is for pH that you shoot for with your water? Yeah, well, I'll start out by saying, yeah, water is like the most important thing when you think about it. It's the only thing that uh, the plant actually like goes into them, you know? It's what they're mostly made of, just like we are. So yeah, it's the most important uh, thing there is. And uh, yeah, I would say definitely know the source. So like whenever I moved to a different house, I'd always check where the water was coming from. I'd call them up and ask them like, what are they, how do they treat it? And we're lucky, I got aquifer water and they only treat it with lime, limestone, I guess, or lime, some sort of lime to adjust pH at some point. So it's basically 7.0 and under 100 plus million the last time I checked, but I should check again. And that reminds me because yeah, I'm still assuming, but you should never assume. And periodically, even if you know you do check and you're pretty confident, you should always double check. So yeah. It can definitely be and, a major uh, yeah. skill point. I'd say, yeah, people underestimate the importance of water for sure. And well water we could have other mic like Brandon was saying, or uh Russ. Uh, yeah, uh it could have more other micronutrients in it that they won't have to pay for and add to the water, you know, instead of going to RO. I don't never understood RO totally, but I kind of, if there's like cocaine in the water or a birth control in the water, shit like that. And like, if you know your water, because like Flint, how many people didn't know they were drinking lead until they like found out they were drinking lead. So hell yeah, check your water. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my take. Something about the wells that you mentioned, um, different times of the year, your well is going to test differently. Because if there's been more rain or less rain, the drier that well gets, the more sediment is going to be in the water. The heavier the rains have been, the lower your PPM is going to be typically, depend, depending on how your well is set up and what part of the world you live in, I guess. But um, from most people that I've talked to who use wells to grow, they'll say, you know, when it's really dry, their PPM start going up and they have to do more of a filtration than when it's been raining a lot and they've got a more pure, clean water in their aquifer. So that's something to think of for sure. And I want to give Spartan Grown a chance to uh, jump in and uh, answer what pH he prefers his water at. Yeah, I would, for me and my organic grows, I would say 6.5 is probably perfect. 6.5, 6.6, I like. Um, but I'll let it range. I'll let it go up to 7. And even as low as 6, I don't like it to be down to 6, but I could let it go that low because I'm, I'm not a big fan of adding pH adjustment to filtered water. It's fucking just pointless half the time. And... Uh, but um, what I'd like to do in those instances, instead of doing a pH adjustment, is add some kind of a, a nutrient that I know adjusts the pH too. That's my favorite kind of go-to. So if I know that like there's something that's like I could use a micro plus from Brandon Russ. I know that's pretty acidic if I wanted to drop the pH. So I don't have to use like the full dose of it. I could use just a little bit of it like as a pH down and, and do shit like that. That makes sense for sure. And for everybody who's answered so far, I think we're all in soil or mostly organic. And uh, next up will be Doc, who is growing with cocoa. And I think uh, the pH actually probably matters most in those circumstances. But I'd love to hear, Doc, what your pH preferred range is and your thoughts on it just growing in cocoa or hydro generally. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit lower than the rest of you guys, but not too much. You know, we start plants off usually when they're seedlings in cocoa at like 6.2, 6.3 um and work it down a little bit by flowering the average is about 5.9 to 6 usually um 
I always like to let my pH wander a little bit. And when I'm keeping a res, which is usually, and aside from the stupid grows that I decide to do hand watering, um, I'll set my pH low because, you know, reservoirs just inevitably, no matter how good of a job you're really trying to do, your pH will creep up over a few days. So um, I'll, I'll set it down to like 5.7 or 5.8 and let it creep up to like 6.1. Um, so, yeah, those, I guess, are my main thoughts about pH. Um, is that oxygen related? Is like oxygen just being with the air stone or pump or whatever, cycling it, creating the water? Does that make the pH go up or is it something else? Well, it's definitely the bacteria that's growing in the reservoir. Um, so the oxygen, hopefully, is keeping it down. Um, it, you know, most of the time what, what growers end up doing is they pump reasonably warm air through their water um which heats the water up so one of the best tricks you can do is like get a if you're using an air pump to keep your your tank aerated um to make sure that you're you sort of have your air pump in the coolest spot you can drawing in like the coolest air don't put it like right outside where the exhaust from your tent is blowing on it or something like that um and really, if you're having that problem, it's better to use a water pump um, and sort of cycle the water pump on before events. We were talking a little bit about this with our, our guests last week um, in terms of, of sort of how to maintain that. But yeah, the, the pH rise, what you'll notice if you're keeping a reservoir, um, what you'll notice, and almost everybody notices this, is that your electrical conductivity will go down a little bit through, through the days and your pH will go up. Um, a little bit of movement is sort of to be expected and with healthy plants, it's not gonna produce any kind of problem. Um, it's why we kind of clean out the reservoirs after a few days, because it is a sign that bacteria is growing in the reservoir. They're literally um, eating the EC, right? That's why your EC is going down. Like the bacteria are growing. And basically yeah they're, they're engaging with the nitrogen the other salts that you you've dissolved there um and they're raising the ph um and they're generally sort of a nuisance but if they're small enough i mean we're creating like sort of the, the perfect environment for these things to grow in this like teeming pot of of nutrients you know um, all in sort of like readily available forms. Um, so it's really tough to, to sort of keep, you know, all life out of that. What you want to watch for is if it's happening too fast. Um, you know, if your pH starts shooting up quickly, um, that's a problem. And I'm not a fan of adding pH down to the reservoir. Um, you know, if you're not able to maintain your pH within a certain range, make smaller doses, make smaller batches, you know, until you're using that before it sort of drifts out of range, um, or keep your, your reservoir cool, do the little frozen water bottle trick or, you know, whatever you can to keep your, your reservoir cool. But if your pH is creeping up, you know, slowly, like, you know, a 10th of a point per day or so um yeah we can live with that i was uh misremembering some honors biology class experiment where my teacher blew into like a little uh beaker and it, i think it either started off clear or blue and then like him blowing into it the oxygen or maybe even carbon dioxide of him exhaling 
change the chemistry within the fluid. So they went from clear to blue or blue to clear or something, but it showed that the pH was changing. So I just didn't remember which direction it was going. So it sounds like the oxygen is definitely not what was making it go up, but the uh, nutrients, bacteria, and other things like that. So uh, thank you for clarifying that for myself. I know sometimes talking through those things can be uh, informative for the listeners as well as myself. If the better we understand the actual mechanism behind the process, the more- No, for sure. If you can keep your tank cool and well oxygenated, you you know, it'll go up less slow. So oxygen is really one of the, the preventers of this, not the cause. Very cool. And then I guess um, the final little bit we can touch on with water before uh, the hour, I guess. And I will pass it first to Matthew is just any implications of like foliar, like um, even changing the size of it, like a fogger versus a mister or I know earlier I kind of mentioned, but like pH is for if you are going to be applying a foliar that either help the nutrients be better uptake in, or if it's a beneficial uh, thing like Bavaria bassiana, there are certain ranges that you want to spray those in. And uh, I won't ask too many questions because I know it's very hard with compound to actually answer all of them. So go ahead. Well, the, it's a simple answer for a lot of the products. If you're getting, you know, if you're getting like Bouveria or some other, you know, bio insecticide or something, you can check the label. There should be a label and it should have that information when you're mixing. And don't just assume that it's, you know, the same for every other product because there are differences in formula. And I, and I like to mention this, that like, you know, I've been interested in plant health or plants in general and insects and that sort of a thing for, most of my life. But one of the things like when I started to turn into a career for myself, um, one of the things that I, that I started to appreciate a lot more that I was, I understood intellectually, but didn't understand in the same way that you do experiencing it and like really, um, you know, doing such things is how products that have like the same active ingredient or whatever, the same organisms um, can be formulated very differently and have very different effects, um, you know, maybe be much more efficacious or not as much. Um, so yeah, so just don't uh, think that's going to be the same for all the different products. Always check and then check again, and then check one more time after having lunch or something, just to be sure. Uh, um, yeah, that's, that's my um, general opinion about that for, for products on sort of a thing that you're applying. I would say that's underrated advice because um, whether it's a brand new vehicle or a firearm, like something that could be dangerous, people don't read their owner's manuals and it can often lead to injury and, and death sometimes. And granted with a growing product, it's a lot less risky. So most people aren't going to go through the process of actually sitting down and reading the label. Sometimes they're long and wordy, but finding out the specific information like your pH and uh, things like that, when to apply. The other thing that I mentioned that um, I didn't hear you uh, respond to was as far as like size i know that certain foggers out there advertise like a micron size for like a mister and i, I have one that i recommend because of its micron size is able to get small enough that it will be actually functional when you're applying it versus certain very small pests and uh getting things like that uh to be the effective droplet size so do you have any thoughts or comments on micron or anything uh, drop size for water Oh yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's also product based too, you know? So like some, uh, usually there's, I mean, usually you want something that's like a professional system, not necessarily like a, like a paint sprayer, right? That's the meme in the cannabis community, right? You can just, why can't I just apply it with the paint sprayer? Right. And there, there's a few different problems with that, but on the topic you're talking about, you know, you usually want this sort of fine 
atomization because well one because if you if it's meant to be used with something that can generate this um you know the this uh pore size and it doesn't then there's going to be a bunch of problems probably um because of how it's composed but also the the benefits is that when you atomize these um products like in a fogger system or whatever um then they sort of waft and they're able to get at all, all these different parts of the, the plant, you know, it's like, almost it's a gas basically, uh, essentially um, for what you're doing. And so you can get that, that amazing coverage that you really need. Otherwise, um, you know, a lot of products, if they fail to make contact and especially in cannabis space, you know, you're not using systemics, hopefully. And so you need something that's a contact kill and it has to actually make contact and enough of the substance has to make contact. And also a lot of these systems that use a fine atomization, um, they're a lot more efficient. They're meant to be, and you're supposed to use less products. So um, whether it's commercial or home grower, if you have access to such things, those are obviously going to be um, more beneficial in that way. And that's of course gonna be useful for you because a more efficient product is less money and time and effort. Like uh, if you go to Walmart and got like a spray water bottle, that nozzle isn't going to get a fine enough mist versus a fogger uh, to get certain pests out there. And as far as paint sprayers go, it's sort of like a meme now because a few people have kind of exposed why they're not great. Spartan has mentioned that they're used to paint a flat surface like a fence and then it can drip down, which is one of the reasons that they're not great. They also typically do not agitate the fluid at all. And even if you're shaking it as best as you can, you're not going to evenly mix that solution. So you might spray half of your pesticide on one half of the garden and then nothing on the other half other than a little bit of water. And they're also meant to spray paint, which is like a thicker, I don't know if it's a Newtonian or non-Newtonian fluid, but paint is thicker than water. So it doesn't spray out of the nozzle the same way that it would a uh, horticultural fogger. And uh, I think 20 micron was the small end of the size that on the fogger that I recommend that works really well for people because if like you, I mentioned earlier, if you're just using a little spray bottle from Walmart or wherever Home Depot, um, it is going to be such a thick droplet that it might not physically contact. Like if you looked under a microscope, you'll see drops all over the leaf, but you could see the bug literally kind of crawling around and not being impacted by it. So uh, contact kill is important because we're pretty much mostly not using systemics, which are pretty much banned and harmful for human consumption in a lot of cases. So things to consider for sure. Brandon, I know you've worked a lot with different foggers, and I know that I think you might even have a discount code for one of the brands out there. Um, do you have any thoughts on the droplet size or application of foggers or misters or things like that? Well, the MeFog Systems fogger that I have for large applications, it has a five micron filter on it. However, um, you know, I brought it to the fab shop and we looked at everything, and I would rather have something like a 50 micron so that way i could run biologicals through it as well it's nice to have one that adjusts um the one that i'm trying to find the name of it right now but it has a dial on there and you can like adjust it from finer to broader but everything within its range is a good end of the spectrum I, i've also looked yeah like that's the the petra backpack fogger which if the listeners are listening and they are looking for a sprayer they can use code bokashi on any Petra Tools products to get a, I think a 10% discount. Just FYI. 
I mean, it is the cheap home grow and I do want people to save money. And I, not only you, but I've seen nice. um, Nome Automatics. I think Spartan has used Petra in the past. So yeah. it's something that we've, we're not sponsored. I mean, Brandon is, but the show no. is not directly sponsored by them. And yeah. we're not just like shilling the product. It's, it's something that he's used and believes in. So. Yeah, I've used the product. I actually switched over to the Mefog systems just because, I mean, it's expensive. I mean, the equipment costs like $4,000, but on the flip side, the savings in labor uh, for doing your app, uh, your spray applications, it, it'll, you know, you're going to save money because this thing has a nozzle that sprays, you know, probably about 15, 20 feet of just clouds. It makes clouds literally it's insane and you can fog a whole room and get complete coverage top to bottom on a plant with whatever you're applying in a matter of minutes so for the home grower if you don't want to coat your whole house which a lot of yeah. these more commercial foggers do uh you literally just if you used it inside your walls are going to be like coated in oh yeah droplets um so home, something that's more sensible for the home grower who's like on a tent or just a little grow room size there's something called the fog master junior that's the one that i recommend it's by odaban you can find them anywhere from like 50 to 150 bucks they're used as like a sanitation tool they can also spray like uh, sanitation chemicals or whatever it is a corded unit it's not cordless a lot of the backpack ones or whatever are cordless but um bingus and a few other growers out there i've recommended this particular fogger to have used it with great success and um, i've seen even like non-cannabis gardeners using this on small outdoor gardens to uh, prevent pests and it, some come with certain pesticides but i wouldn't recommend using those i would use the stuff that you would use for cannabis um, through this fogger and like i said i've seen lots of people have success with it it's, it's on the affordable side and it will save you money on the solution because you can put like just a few ounces of water in there and it will cover your entire garden versus like spending gallons of water uh, i'll try and find the link sour diesel things you just uh, asked in the chat but fog master junior by odaman they're typically sold i think you could find it cheapest on ebay they have their own website um but like I said, it ranges a lot in price. Like Office Depot has one for 250. Amazon is 150. And then I see on SunMac one for $40 and 40 cents. So it just depends on the, where you feel comfortable purchasing things online. But yeah, it's definitely a good option. I'll share screen uh, just to give people an example of what it looks like. I want to shout out uh, the Jeff real quick. Jeff 42069. His question I'll answer real quick. He says, uh, when I use recharge, should I pH? If so, is there a perfect pH for when watering with recharge or is just pH to what I normally do when feeding? And my answer is just pH what you normally do. So put, you know, mix the, mix the recharge into your water. It's going to change your pH, then measure it, and then adjust your pH to what you normally do. If you're in soil, you know, around 6.5, and if you're in cocoa, probably around 6 to 5.8, somewhere in a range like that. So just doing a quick little overview, you could see like tons of different prices, but I think these come with chemicals. That's why the prices are higher. They're uh, coming with cleaning solutions. Here's Amazon for 150. Then you got PE Strong for 120. Um, but yeah, you can look around, do some. And, and it costs 15 those... to 40 microns is the actual range. Oh, wow. So that's a, it's on the smaller end, but some of the foggers, like if I scroll up, there was a Ryobi fogger. Okay. I was just going to say those, yeah. 
they are much, much, much larger micron size. And when oh, I yeah. listened to a few of the um, other IPM people as well talk about this, and I don't know if Matthew's given like a high end of the range on micron size, but they were saying that the small, the size that it needs to get down to needs to be pretty fine and, and very small. And these were not getting as fine of a micron spray if it'll even give it listed. It's not showing it to me right here, but. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say I've seen them at the hardware stores, and those are the ones like the Ryobi's and some of the other ones where you can just plug your regular power tool battery into them. They even have those electric static ones. But I don't, I don't know. That's interesting about the <coughs> microbe size. That's a good point. I had this this discussion with uh, one of my buddies back in the Midwest, and they we're really kind of like hell bent on getting one of these Ryobi ones. And I was just like, we, they went through and found the micron size and it was, I want to say like in the hundreds or like, like high nineties or eighties or something wow. like that. And for some of the stuff that you might need it for the finer range, it's never bad to be finer is what I found out at least for most things, maybe microbes. Like if you were spraying micro plus or something, you might want larger than 40, but for the application of most IPM stuff that I saw, it wanted to be finer the better because it was more likely to be able to create contact. For a lot of the stuff is application that might be great, you know, a bigger size so that you're not like trying to force biology through smaller size, you know, holes or filters or whatever it is. I there's a guy who talks about this. I can't remember his name. It might be Scott from Crease of Soil or somebody else, but um he was talking about like he goes to all these different business to business conferences and asks with like what he could spray mud or sludge through because like for what people apply pesticides with like a traditional pesticide is usually so fine that it can go through pretty much any fogger with like no real issue like the nozzles don't need to be too crazy to handle it but like a compost tea in the world of foggers is like unheard of i guess like all these professionals are like what the heck are you talking about so he had to say like what can i spray sludge through and i can't remember what he ended up like maybe he had to get something custom made or what i came to realize was it wasn't something easily accessible for most people so the foliar and compost tea effectively or whatever seemed a little bit like a pipe dream but i've also seen people do it with just paint sprayers and have effect and swear by it but you never really know at the end of the day yeah there's definitely applications at the commercial level for that for like spraying compost like earthworm casting teas i've seen it where they spray whole orchards and things but yeah at a home scale i'm not sure maybe that Ryobi thing, if it's like a hundred micron, that might be, you might be able to spray. <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to last. That was one of the complaints was battery life not lasting long. So I wonder if you were spraying some gunky stuff through it, if you maybe junk up the internals, but if you spray like bleach through it, kind of like a cloner or something like any, any Mr. Sprayer, if you're going to spray anything through it, that is not just like a very clean oil or, or whatever. And even a, a clean oil, I recommend hot water, maybe with a touch of bleach or H2O2 or something for like 30 seconds to a few minutes after just to make sure that the whole nozzle mechanism is clean and there's nothing left in the lines to gunk it up for the future runs. Does anybody else on the panel have thoughts on sprayers, droplet sizes, and like uh, how to manipulate the water to uh, get it onto the plant for either feeding nutrients through a foliar or uh, IPM applications? Not really, and it's sort of a technical thing. Um, I think it's best served by the home grower. I mean, it's always better to like understand it 
you know, deeply as possible. I'll never say that's a bad thing, but I understand that a lot of people can't take that time. And, um, you know, as long as you, again, like there's usually, like you said, eloquently, Jack, there's a manual or a label or something that will have that, or there's resources online. Like, you know, you don't have to take my word for it or anyone else on this panel. If you think that something is odd or, you know, counter to something you've learned, there are sources that you can check, um, you know, um, living in California, I know that we're particularly fastidious in California about these kinds of things. And uh, it's also true in other ag agricultural extension agencies. So you could probably even call one that's local to you and ask some of these questions too and, and, uh, and get some input. Maybe there's some interesting uh, technology or product on the horizon or somebody else has something to suggest. Um, it's always worth it to get a second and third um, impression, but remember, um, a man with two watches never knows what time it is. So at a certain point, you have to make a decision. The manual comment, which has come up now a couple of times is, and I get it, I, I understand where you're coming from. It just has made me think about how different industries are different and how the information that different products come with are different. As somebody who spends a lot of time with grow lights, man, I don't ever tell anybody to follow the manual or even read the manual. Um, like oh yeah, that's a good point though. Cause sometimes it's like marketing helpful basically. information yes. <laughs> the manual for you. And there's like a bunch of lies and bad ideas and things you shouldn't do um, being recommended as like, you know, recommendations for you. So it's just, it's interesting. I guess, I guess there's a whole skill set probably in figuring out like which manuals, you know, can I trust and which one should I ignore? Um, the other part of this issue is, the, you know, the language issues with the manuals all being translated in from foreign languages that you'd like, I mean, if you can even make sense out of it. So um, sometimes I like to think that we are sort of the, the more authoritative source than the manuals. But anyways, I just wanted to bring that up. No, One reason actually, to buy American. that's a really good point. But um, um, you can go ahead, Jack. I, I wanted to say in, in terms of uh, the manuals that two of the industries that are the most probably guilty of making faulty claims are nutrient companies and lighting companies in the cannabis yeah. space. And yeah. I think it's because we're so new. So, I mean, we're very heavily regulated in a sense, but they're not regulating the picks and shovels types, right? The people that are selling the things to get rich off growing cannabis, the people that are making the grow lights, the nutrients, the right. equipment, the they can make whatever claim they want. And even worse than like the base nutrient, so like the claims made by various supplement products finishes oh, yes. bloom boosters yeah. and not the pesticides For humans you'll too. notice the, the pesticide labeling requirements are so much more stringent that you can't really sort of get away with making false claims and other things like that on a product that's meant as a pesticide but man the product that's meant as a sweetener i mean hold on to your hat <laughs> i was uh, just having a, a interaction that punctuates what you just said dr coco um, I had to explain to somebody, like somebody was, somebody had the temerity to, um, you know, let me know on a post I was making on social media. They were, as people do, they sometimes advertise and um, that's fine, I guess. But it was great because this person was um, advocating for some product and they were like, kills all pests. 
don't have to worry about it. And it's like right then and there, like you say, like that's not allowed. Like that label for pesticides in particular is a legal document. Right. Uh, it is, it, you can't just go around and say, even the word safe, like describing your product as safe is like, not because they're trying to say that nothing is safe, but um, you know, you have to be very careful about wording things, especially. And like you say, certain other products, it's basically just all marketing and there is no regulation, certainly not the person on the side of the road, essentially, um, logistically speaking, who doesn't have to be under the purview of any of these groups. Um, Jack, did you see the post I made on Instagram about the folks with the, the, the green powder? They were saying it gets rid of hop latent viroid. Yeah, Sadly, we yes. About that post in the chat. Yeah, we were. It was that was um, egregious. You know, it's like uh, plant viruses are very difficult to deal with. Um, there's basically no conventional ways to deal with them. Um, even tissue culturing and things like that doesn't always work because it's a process, and processes can be misapplied or whatever. Um, but like, the, because people are desperate, they're gonna go for anything that they can. And when you've got like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on the line, you know, I understand where that comes from, but like, please be very careful um, when you get information. Um, yeah. And, and even if it's somebody charismatic or nice or helpful, uh, you know, whoever that might be, like, just still be careful, like get a, get a third especially if they're nice, be careful. I hate to say it, yes. but con men, <laughs> confidence men, they will confidence con you man. by being happy and smiling and positive and all about the community, peace and love, fucking everything. And they'll tell you everything that you want to hear just to make the sale. And tissue culture is one thing, but uh, let's say they tissue cultured and then they didn't use any of the additional treatments like uh, a bleach, which can get rid of something or a heat or a cold treatment. Those are things that are sometimes used additional to tissue culture or as part of the tissue culture process, but not in everyone's SOP. So like Matthew said, maybe TC can get rid of HPLVD, hoplate and but you might have to go through more steps than just tissue culture and don't trust that everyone's going to do it properly. And even if they go through those steps, it might not get rid of it. It's a very complex thing. You can't just throw green powder at something. But uh, Pat G said saponins in the chat. And that's something that I've actually, not to say that they make too many claims. I feel like only a few people out there in the organic side of things are really pushing them a lot. But um, I think like Clackamas Coot and uh, Abolished Farms are a few of them. Spartan Grown has even mentioned in the past. He likes to throw some soap nuts into uh, a shaker bottle or whatever, shake it up. And then that helps him to get better application, which I've actually done in the past as well and had success with. Yeah, at yeah. Least, so I think. So I think that there can be simple ways where you can find benefits from something like that. And then along with that, another question from Clay Pipes STL says, any advice on how to use the fogger, get it close to the plant or let it go through the room with fans. And from my limited experience, I would say you kind of find a sweet spot um, of how far away to hold it. You, you don't want to be too far away. That's going to, these droplets are very fine. So some of them are literally going to evaporate if you stand too far away, if the room's too hot, if the lights are on, things like that. Um, I think you want to be close enough to get direct application, but far enough away that it's getting a spread um, so that you're kind of, I, I like to go from bottom to top. Uh, underneath the leaf if you can and then come back down from the top to the bottom can but, i jump on that last point jack about the the saponids yes too far on <laughs> um everybody this is a really important point you should always put uh, some sort of wetting agent something to break that surface tension um 
in foliar applications. So whether it's soap nuts or yucca powder or you know a drop of Dawn dish liquid or something else, um, it, it definitely helps with creating smaller droplet sizes and droplet sizes that won't will actually like stay small. They won't pool up into you know little droplets on the leaves themselves. So if you don't have a fogger everybody still should be adding something to make their water wet for foliar applications. I also love Dr. Bronner's. It's made here in Vista, California, and they support yep. hemp. The owner planted hemp on the front of the White House, got arrested for it. He's a pretty badass dude. Cool stories there. And Dr. Bronner's is just an awesome company for both cannabis and other uh, entheogens and uh, plant medicines. So cool company. Another great option for uh, getting your water wetter. And uh, yeah, very cool stuff there. But we had uh, the question from Clay Pipes, uh, STL, and I wanted to pass it to Spartan because he was the one who copied it over to our Zoom chat and asked if you have any thoughts being a person who's got a uh, fogger, I believe, at home, and uh, you use them in the commercial space as well. So what are your thoughts on uh, distance from the plant to spray it? I think it's important more what you're going over about how to spray it, and that's to start out most importantly from the underneath of the plant and spray it up to get underneath the leaves. I see a lot, even at the commercial level, when I was working at the commercial level, thinking to start the other way where they're spraying from the side or from the tops. And when you get those wet, the, the leaves wet, they'll, they'll hang down naturally. And then there's no way you're going to get that coverage from underneath. And a lot of the places where the, especially if this is an IPM spray, or even if it's a nutrient spray, a lot of the, a lot of the pores are underneath or the stomata are underneath on the bottom of the leaves. So you want to hit that first and foremost. So, I would always recommend, even at the commercial level, just to run down underneath the fucking plants and just fucking spray up underneath all of the plants first and then go back and spray the sides and then tops. Um, coverage is more important to me than like how far or close away. I mean, use common sense and don't be so close that you're blasting holes through the leaves. And um, you know, don't be so far away to where you're not getting any coverage where it's just blowing around. And as far as the fans going, I would recommend turn your fans off don't have your fans running when you're spraying um, because it's going to be blowing back towards you and all over you. And God forbid um, it's going to get you sick. I mean, you should be in there with PPE, but even in PPE, you don't want the stuff just covering yourself. So I wouldn't be using the fans. I usually, that's one of the first things I do is um, dim or turn off the lights and then turn the fans off. And then I'll spray it. And then I'll turn the fans back on. And then after a while, if I'll go in there and I'll just see if the plants are physically dry, then I'll turn lights back up. I guess uh, some people like the optic foliar product. They claim it allows you to spray during lights on, but I still kind of prefer either lights dimmed or off if possible. If your environment's not to the point where it's going to get the humidity so crazy that you'll run into other issues with airflow and environmental. Yeah. I think it depends on what your PPFD is to begin with. Um, I do a lot of my foliar applications when the plants are small and the PPFD is sort of not cranked up yet. So I usually don't dim the lights at all unless there's some reason to do a foliar once they're under sort of a full dose of light. Brandon, I know uh, you talked a little bit earlier about your foliars that you like. Uh, do you have any other kind of comments or thoughts on using the fogger or maybe just a general answer to clay pipes question about 
how far away or how close do you prefer to get? And any just technique tips or tricks with uh, using Flare? I don't know if you're away from the computer or stuck on mute, Brandon. I think Brandon might have stepped away for a second or is not able to hear me. But uh, with that being said, I want to give uh, Noah the Groa a chance to uh, jump in here. Do you have any thoughts on the full year topic, Noah? Not a whole lot that hasn't been covered. Um, of course, I haven't uh, sprung for the Petra tool thing yet, but I've been uh, considering it. And um, I, just like Spartan said, I would always recommend starting at the bottom. I'd recommend with my fans off. I mean, everything pretty much covered. That's that's pretty much how I would go about it too. And um, just you know, and also if if you're if you're, what you're doing is working, stick with it. But I would definitely recommend starting at the bottom of the plant, working your way up. That's what I've always done. I actually didn't, you know, when I first started doing it, I wasn't really told, but I just kind of did it and i've always done that and it's worked for me so yeah once spartan mentioned the fact that they kind of flop down I, I never put two and two together but i was taught to start from the bottom and get the backs or bottoms of the leaves first and then come over from the top and i always just figured maybe it was easier from the top or whatever like second run and it kind of is because once they do get that heaviness from the bottom they do drip drip down and make it a flatter surface if they're like praying they kind of pull down flat and you can kind of hit that whole top canopy it's it's a therapeutic process i think once you get into the flow of uh fogging your canopy if uh, you enjoy that kind of thing it's gonna be fun to spend that time with the plants for sure the american one i think you're the last one who hasn't really gotten a chance to jump in on the whole uh foliar topic do you have anything that you'd like to add there or uh not just... really i never really owned a fogger so i don't have much input yeah you were an individual who i think mentioned that you stopped spraying anything for a while because you were just going to try and have beneficial um insects take over but yeah. i think you've since switched back to using a little bit of sprays here and there yeah spray i, I i've been trying to uh break down and spray when i uh should and then and then release beneficials so i get at least two uh and uh codes of action yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and give it a, a little time to uh you know, wear off before I put the beneficials in there. How long of a cool off period um, do you typically go there, Tao? Like between your last application of something that's going to kill insects or pests, and then from when you're actually going to apply well, I, beneficial? I try. I figure like two weeks is plenty, but I could be wrong. Two weeks, I'll order them. So sometimes they come the next day, though, often. You when they say it's not going to be there till next week. Yeah, but that's all right. But yeah, Smart. I'd say two weeks. And then if there's any leftover egg stuff, hopefully there'll be some of them for there to eat at least if there's anything. If not, that's fine too, I guess, yeah. Spartan, I know you'd kind of run a similar plan where you spray maybe up through like the first weeks of flower and then you switch to a beneficial insect plan. Um, how long of a cool off period do you like to do between your last spray and application of beneficials? I don't care if I have beneficials on there. If I need to spray, I'll spray over a beneficial pack because it's a slow release and there'll be more. If I kill them, who cares? There'll be more coming. So um, that's my opinion on that. If I feel like I need to spray for like, there's a serious reason for me to spray and it's, you know, before flowering, I'll spray those fuckers. Even if I've got sachets hanging on there, I don't care. I like that. 
scorch. I remove the sachets when I spray. I'll remove them, spray, and then put them back on. But just knowing that those sachets are going to continue to release. So I wipe, you know, it's like nuking a place and then going, you know, going back in with a few troops. Matthew, do you have any thoughts on a cool off period? And um, I imagine if you didn't remove the sachets, wetting them would probably kill them, especially with the IPM agent. So getting them out of there first is a great idea. It, even if it was just water, I think it could probably cause havoc for a lot of the sachet, whatever the storage feeding material and other things. But Matthew, do you have thoughts on if you were to apply uh, pesticide or whatever, and then go apply a beneficial, what type of time do you like to uh, have between, if any? Sometimes, I mean, I definitely agree with the sentiment that like, it's something that you, it's a feel that you get through experience and sort of learning what the capabilities are and just also the context of where you're growing because some places are a little bit different, right? Um, and different places can be very different from each other um, or you just get a product one day that's not as good or whatever. But if you if you have to, like if you do get a large amount of a pest that's not controlled by a biocontrol and you have biocontrols out there, obviously the best thing to do would to be able to apply some sort of agent or something that doesn't disrupt what you already have going. But sometimes you have to do that. And, and like, that's okay if you have to do that, right? Like it's important for your crop that it doesn't fail. Um, and especially if you have the resources to just simply apply again, it's true. A lot of those uh, slow release sachets can be vulnerable to things like direct sunlight, um, high temperatures, especially for like predatory mites I'm talking about, um, like Kakumers and Swirsky and things like this. Um, and there are also, some sachets are more water resistant than others, certainly it depends on where you're buying from, but uh, you generally don't want to get them like directly sort of soaked if, if at all possible. But that's why, that's why it's so critical to a crop scout, right? Like crop scout beforehand, crop scout regularly, so that when you have to make this, um, decision and if you decide like okay i'm going to go in with you know x like you know safer product or whatever and then you come back and you see like you have like a baseline in your head hopefully you're recording it but i understand most people don't do that physically you should but i get it um it's a lot of work and if you have but if you have at least a baseline in your head and then you come back and there's nothing at all and you sample again, there's nothing at all, then you know you probably have to reapply rather than just presuming, oh, it's okay. You know, I used a, a, I didn't use like something really bad and terrible. So everything should be fine. You know, maybe you forgot that you're actually already at the end of your sachets um, sort of period of, of activity anyways. You need to re-up anyways. You know, little details like that can um, sort of leave you vulnerable. Um, and I haven't said this in a while, so I guess I'll mention it again that like uh, in various crops that I've been growing with, I find that it's more important if you're using sachets, especially to apply like regular at regular intervals and make sure that you apply in such a way that the sachets aren't totally extinguished. You know, all the population of mites have like kind of um, left the, the sachets you want, you want it to be, you want to kind of order and then apply like at, at the tail end so that you always have like a bit of an overlap. And if you can keep the population over a certain threshold, like when I was working with Gerberas, for example, you know, every time that um, presence absence 
population levels sort of went below 50%, we would typically get broad mites during the season that broad mites were very common, which was the summer months when it was hottest. That's true for a lot of insects and, and mites and things. But if we kept the population higher than 50%, then we basically got none because, and, and it's not because they never came around, it's not magic. What happens is that some of those broad mites get in and they get dealt with before there's like really an explosive growth of the colony um, or multiple colonies. And honestly, I think that's a winning stratagem. I think so too. It's you get some fresh fighters coming in as the uh, tired ones are finishing up their job and the actual population numbers, you know, certain ones die off. They're not there anymore. So once they hit that 50% threshold, they're not as effective and to have another re-up is a huge thing. And uh, does it, I just want to pass it to the rest of the panel if they have any thoughts on the uh, applying a pesticide and then following it up with a beneficial before we go into our final topic for the night. Seems like nobody else. All right. Well, with that being said, the last topic is more of a just catching up with you guys because uh, we've been so regimented with our Q&As, with our topics on our shows. I just want to get a little bit of a garden and life update from around the panel. So if you have anything new and exciting going on in the garden or in life, uh, I guess you could share it. It doesn't have to be cannabis related. Um, just be nice to get a little update from everybody. So I guess I'll pass it first to Spartan. Well, first, I'll just talk about a little bit about uh, the little party we had for sequence today for his birthday. We usually have a birthday party right around this time for him. And uh, this time he picked a place out and uh, that had go-karts. I didn't go to that part of it, but I went to the after party where there was a cookout. But they were uh, at the back up that they, they were raced go-karts, but these ones were like, I guess, souped up where they could go like up to 60 miles an hour and they were electric. So like the acceleration was like pretty quick. It wasn't like a, you know, gas powered engine. So that, and it was indoor, which surprised me. So uh, that sounded like they had a lot of fun doing that. And then uh, we all met back at uh, Pan Lady's place and she hosted us there. She's got a beautiful spot in the backyard. And um, oh my God, the food was every single piece of food that was there. Every dish was fucking amazing. And I'm not even talking shit. It was just, so red Becca, I think Becca brought it, but brought a fresh made salad. They, like they harvested everything out of their fucking garden in the morning before, right? And uh, Yeti and Amanda brought uh, a pie, like a strawberry peach pie that she made or something with it, like this. That she had like the heavy whipping cream. It was making the fucking whipped cream fresh there. And it's like, oh Jesus! Uh, sequence like smoked a tri tip and and chicken wings. And it's just fucking everything was like mouthwateringly good. Sequence or not sequence, uh, Skillbo made like this uh, corn corn pudding or some shit. I don't remember what it was called, but it was fucking good. Man, I'm getting myself hungry. I've been sitting eating candy here during the show just because I'm so. I brought Spartan cookies, so I had about one and a half of those before the show here, and I'm like struggling to keep my fucking eyes open. But I'm got like the munchies real bad, so I've been eating hammering candy, high chew candy. <laughs> A little uh, sugar high to keep you going. Yeah, so that was my day today, man. I'm I'm so high from just talking to everybody there. There's more people. About Tara Wilson was there. That tree was there. Porch Farmer was there. There's a lot of people there. It was fucking cool to see everybody. It's just kind of like the uh, COVID times where you don't really get out and see everybody. It's cool to just hang out for a little bit. So shout out to everybody, Michigan Rose Grow Show. That was that was cool. 
definitely got me wanting to uh, visit Michigan more and more. If flights weren't <laughs> so crazy, I'd definitely be there. But uh, right now, it's definitely I, I canceled my Fourth of July trip back to Ohio, which I do every year. And uh, I, I want to get to Michigan super badly, but just once uh, flights get a little more reasonable, I think I'm definitely yeah, gonna be there. Yeah, so many man. good people. But it's a far. I mean, when you look, I, I was telling myself, oh, I'll just drive, and I looked up far. No, fuck no, I won't drive. <laughs> fuck that. Yeah, not me either. The the drive, I can make it to Vegas, but I'm not gonna make it to Michigan. It's it's date like a week trip. And I can't believe how far it was just for me to get to Vegas and to drive. I'm like, nope, I will be flying to Vegas or a train or something that goes faster than a car. Yeah, Vegas. Definitely, from here we had more here. of those. Like across the deserts, and I mean, maybe the maintenance would be bad. I'm not a civil engineer, but could be. I can nice. tell you, the Greyhound to Vegas will definitely uh, not be the most reliable transportation if it's anything like my experience, because oh boy, mine fucking broke down in the middle of the desert in the middle of the summer, which was not a fun time. Fuck uh, that! Oh my god! Yeah. A few hours on the side of the road in the Greyhound with a bunch of uh, strangers going to a concert in Vegas. But anyway, back to the uh, life updates. I want to get a touch base from the american one i don't have all that much new it was uh i'm still stuck on going through some of that chocolate tie and the chocolate and i'm gonna have to uh you know i want to uh breed with one of them chocolate tie males but other than that <clears throat> it's the same that's exciting plant. but yeah, how is uh new york it just went legal it's got to be so different for you over there we got to have some sort of updates is it weird just walking around seeing people blaze blondes and joints it on the smells side of the road? a lot it smells a lot good. It smells a lot better in a lot of places. That's a good and, idea. Uh, yeah, I saw a clip. I didn't wasn't there, but uh, and I, it was probably Washington Park. But anyway, they uh, had like a table up and they had jars on it and they had live plants. And the cops came up and they just looked at everything and they just kept scrolling, even though it's technically not legal to be like selling it like like they're doing but there's uh always go arounds and right now they're like everybody's doing the go around thing and they, they the city threatened they're gonna bring, uh you know start cracking down on it but uh as of right now that has a bit too much on that front yeah it's funny once it goes legal unlike the small scale the cops kind of just stop caring <laughs> like I don't know, if you're doing illegal commercial scale stuff they'll still kind of care but if you're small scale like one guy with a tent or whatever a pop-up tent either at a park or at your home for the yeah, most like part, it's so the, um you know they sent the cease and desist letters to retail locations i would basically buy this t-shirt and you get an ounce for 300 dollars. you know the t-shirt's a little expensive but you get an ounce of good weed with it or whatever you know i don't i've never gone to one of them yet but that's basically what they're doing and, you know, the place has to have a location. They can mail that seat to cease and cease order. So it is more, uh, you no know, commercial-ended uh, enterprises. I got that. Like the dude on the corner that's just trying to uh, show up what he got or whatever. No, who knows? Isn't They're trying really to collect those taxes. Yeah. They, they want the tax money. They want, they want the, the big business to make the money, yeah. not the big uh, underground business, which has been making exactly. it for this whole time. So definitely sounds like improvements in new york i want to pass it to doc and uh, see if there's anything new and exciting on your end not too much i've gotten back into making some videos so i got like a new video out last week and i've got another video coming so if you've been sort of like asleep at the switch on my youtube channel you can start paying attention again it was like two months that i was too busy with other projects um to to sort of stay up with my video commitment so 
it's been nice getting back into that. I still don't have any plans. I'm not going to have plans probably until the end of August when I launch my plans for the plant training grow challenge, which will be our next challenge at uh, Cocoa for Cannabis. Um, so I don't know, it's the summer. It's like the hot part of the year. I'm going to have a little barbecue tomorrow and um, like fun things like that in my personal life. But yeah, no, I usually take July off anyway. So I'm kind of like a, a empty tenter at this point and paying attention to other people's grows and sort of getting more dialed into other people's plants because I pulled down my harvest in the, boy, uh, I hit the beginning of May, I guess. Um, so it's been a minute since I've had plants and I'm looking forward to, to getting them started again soon. Are you feeling the empty tent syndrome? Like I definitely, when I'm between harvest, I feel, uh, I definitely miss the plants. Yeah, I definitely don't miss. I mean, I had such a pain in the ass and sort of grow set up. Um, for the New Year's Grow Challenge, which I was doing over the winter that, I mean, I ended up hand watering like the whole way through and I was just kind of a pain. Um, so I don't miss that part of it. Um, but having plants, I mean, you know, we have plants outside and stuff, but it's not, I don't have the same kind of relationship. Like we develop a relationship with these plants when we're growing a few, like three, four, five, six plants in a tent. Like you get to know each plant. You can tell when the plants had a good day or a bad day. I mean, you know, and having those kinds of relationships with plants, I think is like really satisfying on a fundamental level. I think it's one of the, you know, it's a consumatory sort of satisfaction. It, it, it answers its own call. Um, and it's one of the the great benefits that I think that we should all sort of remember to be grateful for as home growers. Um, but yeah, I definitely miss it when I don't have that. I uh, have a sort of little bit of that feeling again with the new plant, because as I shared in the little cheap home grow group chat, Lady Greenstock, oh, I think my connection might be a little messed up or maybe my camera just froze. Can you guys hear me? We got you. Okay, cool. Uh, Lady Greenstock brought home a plumeria cutting that was not rooted. And it was just something she found on her way home from work. It was actually somebody was throwing it out at work. It was like sitting on the side of their office building. And she's like, oh, I love plumeria. It actually had like a flower on it because it was kind of stressed when they're in like a small pot or not rooted or whatever. Um, sometimes they'll do that. But she brought it home and just stuck it in a watering can on the side of the house. And she's like, hey, can you plant this for me? And like, I didn't have soil ready at the time and I was really busy with work or whatever and just kind of forgot about it, left it there. And um, when I finally had time, just, I can't remember if it was Saturday or Friday, I went to pull the plumeria out of the watering can and unbeknownst to me, she'd been adding water to it just so that there was, you know, kind of keeping it alive. It had like two little new growth, growth tips of leaf on there. And when I pulled it out, it had like a several inch long roots on there and was completely ready to be transplanted. Like I actually went to uh, Home Depot and Lowe's to get the rooting powder because um, that was was recommended to watch a few plumeria videos on how to root a plumeria. And it's like, okay, use the rooting powder, or like you cut off the bottom or whatever. And it's kind of like, almost like rooting a cannabis clone, similar enough at least that uh, I figured I could make it happen. And unbeknownst to me, it was already rooted. So I just transplanted it into a pot, got it all, uh, ready to go. And now it's like my new little 
side project that I yeah out. now you love that plant man you get you look forward to seeing that yeah. plant every day every and morning you, I check on it make sure it's got water if it doesn't you know hit it if it's just making sure when I come home yeah, and check you, on it are you talking to it it's been named Mary it's been named? Maria you see uh-huh. and that I mean there's just there's real tangible sort of psychological benefits that come out of this relationship that we can develop with plants I need to go befriend a yucca or something I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get on that I think it's important to, in that story, there's a little nugget of knowledge too that I like to give to new growers that contact me with struggles with cloning. I'm like, just take a cutting and put it in a glass of water. Just fucking take a cutting and put it in a glass of water. Change that water out every day, maybe every two days. And it will root eventually. So like a lot of plants, if you just put them in the water like that, just sit in the water bucket, sit there, it'll root. You, You can make it complicated or you can make it, you know, not complicated. Um, yeah, you can increase your chances and everything by doing all the extra steps, but uh, you can make it real simple too. Yeah, it's funny because like same thing with cannabis or plumeria. When I went to look up the guides for plumeria, like some people cut a little V in the bottom of it so that when it plants, it, it can like shoot out roots from the V cutting. Some people cut a flat thing on the bottom. Some people put it in a three gallon pot. Some people put it in like a solo cup. Some people put it in a whatever size. And then one of the comments I read was like, I've watched like 30 videos on how to root a plumeria and like I've seen 30 people have success doing 30 different methods. So what it shows me is it could probably root with a lot of different ways and you just kind of got to go with what works for you and and try and find something that does work because one of those 30 ways might not work for you at all. And then, you know, maybe 25 of them will, but you just got to find the one that you work with. And uh, it's a fun new experience to try out growing a new plant. I've grown some different foods and things throughout my times, but uh, just flowers that I'm not going to consume just for the beauty of having it on the side of the house to beautify the yard is a a fun little side project. And like Doc said, you do gain that attachment, especially when you name a plant. When I first started growing cannabis again in my current setup, I would name each pheno, uh, not just like a number, because I think that you do get more of that emotional attachment and commitment to the plant for sure. Not that you should need it, but it helps. I had to stop doing that. And I actually kind of talked to myself about not developing too tight of an emotional connection with my cannabis plants because we murder them in the end. And like, it it becomes, (laughs) it becomes hard to do that if you're really like, if this is your, I mean, it becomes, I think most home growers sort of, you know, have a moment's hesitation before cutting down their plants anyway. So you say your final thanks. Before yeah, you once them. you name them, man, that's like, that's harder. It was like Tao. He can't kill a plant, even if it's not flowering. Like he had that mutant plant for like a year and a half before it finally died off. I don't think we ever even realized if it was a male or a female. But. This is why I don't grow regular plants, seeds because, you know, plant murder is hard. We had a, a live one the other week with uh keystone cops i think it was i came on and chopped one yeah man total aggression on that male got him out of there it needed to be done but uh noah the grower i don't think i've checked in with you yet uh how are things going over for you in the pacific northwest it's going good we've uh we had a little bit of a hot streak but now we're like today it's 71 so it's nice weather here um, that's funny. I, I have a lot of other plants. I've, I've, I've posted a little bit in our, in our Instagram chat there. I have a lot of plants and bushes outside, but, uh, I actually have a, uh, a spider plant that was my uh, late father-in-law's. I've had it since I was, since 2018, it was in his apartment when he passed away and I've kept it alive this whole time. 
I've made little babies off it and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I know exactly what you mean about being attached to plants. Like I always try to say a little something kind of like, you know, like, Oh, Hey, thanks for everything you've done. Like I, I totally feel what you're saying, doc. I'm very attached to plants. I always have been my whole life. I come from a family of gardeners. My family has been farmers generations back. And, um, my uncle, he told me one time, he said, this is in your blood. And, uh, I truly believe that I love gardening a lot. And, uh, now on the other side of my personal life, I spent a lot of time with my granddaughter. I just recently found out that I'm going to have another grandkid from my other son. So I guess being a 43 year old double grandpa, that happens when you have kids young, but, uh, being a grandpa, it, it fits nicely with me and I've had a lot of fun with it. So that's probably what I would say what I've got going on. Congratulations, man. I got the news that I'm going to be a double. I'm going to be a double. What do you, I already have a granddaughter and both my son and my daughter both are due. Like my son's uh, girlfriend is due in a month and my daughter just told me a month ago that she's pregnant. So I'm like, what? You guys are killing me. I'm 43 years old. Same. Congratulations, <laughs> hey, you're not that old, guys. You got a lot of life ahead of you and a lot of good times with those grandkids and memories to be made. And, uh, you know, Grandpa Spartan and, and Grandpa Noah are going to be hanging out and being that cool grandpa, changing the stigma from so many people's grandpa was like, cannabis will make you do this, this, and that. And you're going to be like, cannabis is good <laughs> medicine. You can grow it yourself at home. I'll teach you. Here's a clone of my best shit. And they're going to be like, damn, grandpa is cool as hell. Like, I want to go back to his place again. So definitely respect to the cool grandpas out there that are keeping it real. But one thing I wanted to say with chopping the plant down, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the Native Americans when they will take an animal or a plant, they want to use every single part, every piece of the animal, every little bit of the plant. And they figure out all the benefits for like, you can use roots for one thing, you can use leaves for one thing, you can use flowers, all these different parts have benefit to them. And, and the more we research and grow to love this plant, the more we can find different uses for it and really put it to work for not just ourselves, but our friends, family and loved ones. So it's an amazing community to be a part of. And with that said, I want to pass it back to Spartan Grown because I know he's got to take care of his dogs and uh, refill his tray and get ready for before the Michigan Bros Grow Show if they're still doing it tonight, even with the secret. Yeah, it might be like a remote show. Some of the people like Skilbo who have drive far, they might just hang out and do the show uh, from from uh, from location, probably out like the side by course. side, like how we had yeah, Aaron and. Uh, uh, they, put a call out, they put a call out. They said, "Bring your laptops. Bring your you know cameras." So we'll see what happens, but. Uh, uh, I'll be sitting here nice and comfortable, so I'll be laughing at them. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom, be nice and comfortable for the show, and uh, I'll catch everybody there in about, what, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And thanks for the show, guys. This was a fucking another great show. Jack, you do a really good job. I don't know if we if we uh, say it enough about bringing up the topics. It, it really is nice to have a structure. You know, a lot of these shows are just free form, which are great. But uh, this one tends to have a little more clout because we actually get through topics, which is appreciate it man so thank you for your work thank you for coming and being a part of it i was actually a little bit worried that i didn't have you pre-show i didn't mean to call you out live on air about the mic but i've gotten too many dms now and i don't want the people to think that i'm ignoring them and it almost worked out that uh you know we talked about it on air but that aside i think you always offer so much to the show and i appreciate you being here and i'm glad that uh a topic as simple as water could keep us going for an hour and a half and uh we could keep it interesting and uh I really uh, am thankful that you're able to make time for us each week as busy as you are. So thank you as well. Wow, man. Appreciate, appreciate the spot to be here. Girls love guys. Have a great one. Peace out, Spartan. Have a good one, man. Later. So Brandon, um, 
I don't know if you were away from Mike for a little bit or not, but um, we passed it over to you and then I, I didn't get a response. So um, we we're doing a little bit of life updates, uh, whether it's garden related or uh, not. Just kind of curious how everybody's doing, maybe even just what you're smoking on or, or how, how are things going over there for you? Great. Everything is going good. Everybody should go check out Bokashi Earthworks website, www.bokashiearthworks.com. And because I got that kind of redone for the moment, we're finishing our final label revisions for everything. And then we'll do a final uh, relaunch of the website. I have larger product sizes for the microbes, for the humate fertilizer. Um, my facility in Southeast Oklahoma is almost built out and we have seven flower rooms there. I've been working down there, getting that all set up. Um, I'm going to be heading out to Hawaii in four days. I'll be out there for a couple of days and I fly out to New York. Uh, I have a thing with uh, a, like a V like a private party with like FOS and compound and uh, some other people and stuff compound. Felipe, the owner of Compound Genetics, I've been talking to him. Maybe we might be able to get something going using the ag, ag data stuff that I've been collecting. But everything's good, man. I've been scaling out Bokashi Earthworks. More people are getting on the regiment. Uh, it's everything's going really good, man. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be meeting up with uh, Greg McAllister, who created Northern Lights, uh, when I'm Pretty out dude. in Hawaii next week. Also known as Seattle Greg by some out there, but yeah, Seattle Greg McAllister is the Northern Lights creator. Yes. So um, I've just been doing, you know, whatever I can buy a, a, a piece of land and a house and stuff. I uh, finally can actually give you some advice uh, that I think might be pertinent for you is I'll say never say final when it comes to your labels, because like I said to uh, Noah and Spartan, the grandpas, you got a lot of life ahead. That thing is going to keep yeah. changing and keep adapting as these new regulations change and grow and expand and Bokashi Earthworks is going to be here in another decade. And uh, the labels might look a little bit different then, but it'll still be killer product with your name behind it. And uh, the people trust that. And that's what matters the most. So I'm happy that it's going well for you and that you're able to go to one of my favorite places, Hawaii. I know Noah V. Groa is also a Hawaii fan. Maybe we got to all pitch in for the cheap home grow uh, timeshare or something over there where we could all have a little spot whenever we go out to the islands to uh, meet up and, you know, hold it down figure out a little rental or something. But anyway, that aside, I think uh, we've got 15 minutes left. So I'm curious if uh, anybody has any final topics that they want to talk about, or actually I didn't pass it to Matthew. So I want to pass it to Matthew and get a little update, see how things are going for you. I actually have to head out a little bit early too. I'm supposed to hop on a little thing for a little bit at eight. So no worries. Just let the people know where they can find you. Cause did your Instagram get deleted or did you get reinstated? I know it's always I got it a... back again. You guys know me. They can't, they, they can't keep me deleted. I've had it deleted five times, but I always get it back. Account recovery. Specialist. Yeah. So um, yeah, you can find me at rust.brandon on Instagram. Also Bokashi earthworks. You can check me out on the website, all those places. And then if you just search my name on Google, man, you can find a ton of podcasts on there. You've been super active all across the platform. It's good to get the word out there and we appreciate you whenever you can uh, make it here. And uh, thank oh, you so I much for joining can, us. I did can of cribs last week. Nice, man. That was a, always a cool one. Yeah. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Have a great one. Bye. Peace out, Brandon. Bye guys. So Matthew, I know I actually, uh, you're the one on the panel I actually get to see the most in person being, uh, 
another fellow San Diegan. But uh, for the people out there that are listening, do you have anything uh, new and exciting in life or in the professional side of things that you'd like to share? Yeah, I do. Um, basically, some people who follow me on uh, the Future Canvas Project in my pest presentations, if you haven't checked those out, like each pest that we talk about, it's always one particular one. Um, I usually have a long form presentation that's got like all the info you could ever want to know about them. Um, and then we do some Q and A's afterwards. I, I mentioned in those presentations that uh, in 2021, I published two chapters and two different books from a colleague um, who's a professor. The first was in a book called uh, Biopesticides and Organic Farming, Recent Advances. And that chapter is called Integrated Pest Management Against Arthropod Pests of Cannabis Sativa in the United States of America, where I touch on the common pests that people deal with. That came out in 2021. Another one in um, viral diseases of field and horticultural crops. I wrote a chapter for viral diseases of hemp. Um, so you can check that uh, as well. And this uh, year, I'm going to be writing another chapter for another book. And that book is called, um, I think I have it here. Or no, it's not called this. This will be the subject. Um, the subject will be recent advances in organic farming. Also, my summer skunk magazine issue for 2022 is out. And on High Times, I was recently featured in an online article about six common pests in cannabis. And people seem to really like that quite a bit. So you could check out some of my content there. Of course, my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, has not been super active with um, some of my pest primer videos or long time or long, long, uh, sort of form videos. I've been very busy. Summer and spring are my busiest sort of professional times. So um, I've been putting my videos a little bit on the back burner, but that might be changing somewhat soon, depending on how things kind of coalesce in the next month or so. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a lot more writing, which I've been very excited about putting um, a lot of these interesting concepts and experiences in a way that people can uh, access and consume them that way. And also on my, uh, of course, on Instagram, um, that's where I'm very active in posting a lot of cool research reports and things like that, as well as some people's um, sort of errant forays in uh, viroid destruction. Um, people got a kick out of that. And, you know, I don't like to make it a big habit of like, you know, I guess you could call it debunking or demystifying, or at the very least, it's just analyzing. It's like, if somebody's like, I have this really miraculous thing, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm not going to tell you what's in it. I'm not going to tell you how we know it works. Just trust me, bro, it works. You know, that probably doesn't even require a lot of analysis for a lot of people, but people are desperate. So I just want to, you know, reiterate that you know, people try to take advantage of you. And just because they sound confident doesn't mean they know what's going on. And of course, it's a specialty in and of itself to know enough about a subject to know what subject matter experts to even trust in the first place. It's kind of a problem, right? But, um, you know, get out there and, you know, there's agricultural universities that might be local to you that have experts that will have um, some opinions for you as well. There's various people in the space that are, you know, genomicists or pathologists or integrated pest management specialists or things like that. Um, 
so yeah, just uh, yeah, don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, one of the most one of the coolest things I've been able to do lately is on Twitter, which is also the same username, SyncAngel, as my Instagram. You know, I can reach out to like a myrmecologist or a you know some other sort of entomologist or other uh, or a genomicist or a, a fungi expert and just ask them, hey, what do you think about X? And a lot of times they'll respond. And it's just kind of surreal, you know. Um, it's never been easier in some ways to contact experts and, and get some, some information from them, um, especially in sort of a short form, bite-sized way. So I definitely think that that's something I'm not, I've not always been comfortable with because I don't want to be burdensome or troublesome. But I've been surprised with how accepting people have been you know, as long as they're into it and it seems like they, they want to be bothered. But if they're on Twitter, I imagine um, <laughs> they're going to want to, they're going to be okay with a little bit of contact. They're open to engaging in the discourse. At least most of these people are so niche in their own field. When somebody asks them a question, I feel like they're generally excited to be able to use what they've learned and, and put it to use and share it. If it's not like a direct professional competitor or something like that. But, uh, some of your content, I feel like it's definitely evergreen, like the former pest primers, like how many pest primers a year do you need to make on spider mites? Like Very true. one every five years or 10 years, like from what I watch, I feel like it's still pretty solid, but it would be cool on some of those, like when you see grandiose claims, if you had it within your content creating budget or time, I know that those are both really difficult things to squeeze in, but um, getting some of these products and then maybe testing them against like the claim, if you knew somebody who had locally had like spider mites and then somebody's like, this is the cure-all for spider mite. And then you bring it over and test it and do a quick video on like, hey, this is what they said it would do. And here's my actual use case. So that the, I always like that kind of content in whatever field, like uh, putting the product to the test in the practical way as much as we can. But uh, ideally it should have some testing and like we mentioned earlier, pesticides have more strict testing. So thankfully there is actually a lot of that is being done uh, before you even get to use a product, but Noah's in his garden right now. So I want to spotlight that for everyone because it looks like you uh, reset a few plants in there. They're looking earlier in flower, but you got a few latent flower. Noah, it's looking good. Yeah, I, uh, I just, uh, well, since the last time I pulled down these here, put, put three right there and a fly followed me here, of course. And, um, yep, I got, uh, my room going on here. Just showing everybody here at the end of the show. There's, uh, these buds are getting pretty decent size here. That plant's on probably day 50, day 55. I have to look to make sure. But... Yeah. Just showing everybody real quick what I got going on. I feel lucky to be able to do it and um, I enjoy doing it. And I like uh, being able to talk to other people about it, man. I always have a blast with you guys. I'm glad you're healthy again in the garden. I know for a while you were scooting around on a scooter and uh, it was a lot more difficult. You had to have people help you out in the garden. Oh, and yeah. so doing something like this where you have the you know, physical ability to walk around the garden and do it as you remember how for so many years to just how you're used to doing it it's got to be nice just to only have to worry about the important things like the the plant's health and what kind of soil and pots and everything else the lighting and, and fans everything you've got pretty dialed in there uh you've been rocking that setup very successfully for quite some time now and i always uh, 
get a smile on my face whenever I see you highlight your room there. And uh, it's it's nice to show it to the cheap home grow listeners that are live with us on the YouTube or if they want to jump over from the podcast and watch the YouTube at the end. Noah's showing off his garden here a little bit for us. But with that said, Noah, where can the people find you? And uh, final thoughts and shout out. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Noah DeGrow on Instagram with two E's. You can find me there. And I time every week I can. Like I'm actually a little under the weather right now of allergies, but uh, I made sure I made it. I wanted to show off my room. I had the transition there. And uh, yeah, uh, I'll be here next week with everybody. And uh, everybody that's listening, thanks for tuning in. And just like Spartan said, Jack, thanks for, for hosting. You do do a great job. You get said enough. And uh, see everybody next week. Thank you very much, Noah. And next up, Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yeah, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I enjoyed the show about water. Water was a good topics for, for today's show. Thank you, Jack. A lot of come up in, in chat and in comments that you definitely do an excellent job of, of hosting the show and keeping us all sort of pointed in the same direction. Um, want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July tomorrow. Stay safe. Don't use tri- fireworks to try to light up your grow tents um enjoy the holidays and and time off um we'll be back next week i guess um we're doing a few like giveaways and stuff with some sales and and stuff on our deals and discounts page we're doing the grower love giveaway this month again um so check that out and um yeah thanks to the panel thanks to chat thanks jack thank you for joining us i just actually shared uh one of the spotlights for i think one of your upcoming grow light tests that you posted recently i think on your story or on your page so uh, definitely go check that out and thank you again doc for joining us as always pleasure to have you say about that but that'll be next monday so i'll talk about that one next week so we're gonna have a big uh giveaway event next monday but and i definitely second being safe on the fourth i had a family member blow a handoff when i was very young uh with a firecracker and uh not not fun stuff you definitely don't want to go through that i'll say that so be safe have fun but uh, celebrate responsibly. And next up, Matthew Gates. Yeah, I definitely have to reiterate that as a fellow American, um, you know, be careful, be cautious of fuses. Uh, um, what's the phrase? A falling knife has no handle. Um, I think that's also true for explosives. So, you know, don't try to save anything throw that thing away if anything seems odd and uh, also make sure to put um, uh, coolant and radiator fluid in your cars don't uh, have any breakdowns or things like that it's getting hot I live in southern California it's gonna get hotter all right like that's not gonna change so be be cautious drink water and um, make good choices in that way as uh, my sergeant would say don't add or subtract from the population on the weekend so <laughs> unless you're supposed to, unless you're, unless it's all uh, good, um, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. You can also find me on Instagram at SyncAngel and on Twitter at SyncAngel. Have a great weekend, everyone. And I guess next week. Absolutely. And last and definitely not least, especially with a name such as the American one going into the fourth. Cheers, Tao. Yes. Happy fourth, everyone. Happy Independence Day from those oppressive British. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, don't be losing any digits or hands or fingers because you can't roll a joint. I know it's kind of a lost art nowadays, but you can't do dabs easy either with only one hand. It's difficult. So yeah, 
Keep your fingers. And uh, Jack, thanks for the uh, hosting of the show. It's always good. And you always fill in the blank times and uh, have great topics to bring up. And peace to everyone in chat. And uh, yeah, enjoy the uh, burgers, steaks, and uh, whatever else you got going on the grill. And yeah, don't blow off any fingers. And uh, yeah, I'm the American one, the American one on YouTube, and the American one underscore with underscore Akeens, A-C-H-E-N-E-S on the IG. So peace out, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. As always, the American one. I am at Jack Greenstock on Instagram. You can also find me Jack underscore Greenstock as my backup account or Twitter. And I've also uh, on the Cannabuzz if you're over there at Jack Greenstock. But if you want to email me, if you're not on social media, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. Uh, what can I say that hasn't already been said? Uh, great advice from everybody on the panel. Uh, be safe, have fun, spread love, and have a great week, everybody. Jack Greenstock, signing out. Catch you next time. Show love, everyone.